Welcome to Composing Myself, a special podcast series celebrating 50 years of great composers at Wise Music. Presented by Jill Graham and Dave Holly. Today, myself and co-host Dave Holly will be talking to award-winning composer Joby Talbot, who's well known for his music in every genre, including dance, opera, orchestra, film and choral music. Joby, welcome. Hi. Hi. So we're going to start, we're going to jump straight in at the beginning and ask, you know, what inspired you to write music to become a composer? Um, I, don't, I, feel, I mean, it feels to me like I didn't really have much choice in the matter. I just... Uh, fell in love with music when I was a kid and then it only became kind of more intense as I sort of became an adolescent. I played, um, I played in orchestras and sung in choirs and wind bands and I played in a rock band at school and I just uh, had this kind of insane love affair with, with, with music. It, was, um, it became sort of everything for me at quite a young age. Um, I don't really know why, but uh, I think I sort of tried to resist it. I had an idea that I was going to be a scientist or something for a while, and then uh, and then saw sense. And uh, yeah, around about I suppose when I was about fifteen or sixteen, I really kind of knew that this was this was going to be the thing I did for the rest of my life, ideally. And um, I remember the careers advisor at school said um, it's a very bad idea to mix your uh, your profession with your hobby. That's like. What, in case you enjoy your life too much? <laughs> I mean, you know, perish the thought. Did you ever do any of the jobs, Joby? I mean, I did like, yeah, I did horrific jobs. <laughs> My first job out of school was working the night shift in a mortuary at the local, local hospital. Um, oh, that's fantastic. And I worked... Well, that's not fantastic. That sounds horrible. Yeah. Well, that wasn't as bad as the next job, which was working in a laundry in a mental institution. Um, and that wasn't, it wasn't about the, I mean, the laundry itself wasn't very pleasant. Um, the patients were very interesting, but the other people I had to work with, not so interesting. And then, uh, uh, yeah, just, you know, and then I, I mean, I got to a stage where I was, um, teaching music, like just running around, um, teaching piano, oboe, even like, even instruments I didn't really play trying to stay like one page ahead of the tuna day book, <laughs> unsuspecting <laughs> students. Um, while I was going through uh, music college, so that was that was teaching kids who were learning to play those instruments. Yeah, yeah. So going to their homes and any well, going to schools mostly. Yeah. Um, driving around South London, uh, you know, checking into all these different schools, and and then you know, and then writing music, you know, when I wasn't doing that, and and going to music college, and then I um, and then I started to um, then I was, then I was playing in a, in a band that actually had some success and. Um, and that became my like my day job, like you know, being I was on a retainer and you know paid for gigs and you know there was a few years there in the nineties where I didn't even I didn't even have anywhere to live because you know why bother when you're on the tour bus all the time? What what was the band? It's called the Divine Comedy. Oh yeah, so that was where I first came across your name um, uh-huh. because I think I used to work for EMI and and oh, right. um, EMI signed Parlophone signed Divine Comedy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's before I, I left. 
Yeah. And that last album, which I'm very glad I did because, um, well, I'm sort of proud of the album. That's how I met um, Nigel Godrich and all the cool things that came to me, you know, subsequently through my friendship with him. Um, but then, yeah, and then I got, so I got to the point where I was like, you know, playing in, a, in somebody else's band and doing their arrangements. Then I was doing string arrangements and stuff for other bands, um, still writing my music in, you know, my spare time. And then the kind of thing sort of shifted and I, and I found that I was, you know, actually, you know, I was getting asked to do things like, you know, I started to get my first sort of TV work, writing music. Um, so everything sort of shifted to like, you know, that became my day job, writing music for TV and film. And I was writing my classical music when I, when I, when I could. And then, and then it shifted again to this wonderful situation now where, you know, I make my living out of writing basically the music I want to write. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. It was interesting. I was thinking the other day when I first met you, um, I was running something called the Society for the Promotion of New Music, which yeah. sounds like a sort of something that would kill or cure anything. <laughs> and I remember standing in the in the meeting room and we were standing up by the radiator because it was freezing cold. And I said, so what sort of music um, do you write, Joby? What do you like? He said, I like I write music that I want to listen to. And I was like, what a great answer, you know? Well, it's, I mean, I, that was a kind of, uh, I had a sort of revelation after I finished, um, I studied at the Guildhall School of Music and, you know, and I was a very dutiful young man and I basically wrote the kind of music I thought those guys wanted to hear. And then after I left there, um, there was one day I was thinking, you know what, maybe I should actually write stuff that I want to listen to rather than, because, you know, I do feel that you, you, you it's quite easy if you go through academia, um, you know, as as a musician, it's it's quite easy to find yourself just sort of, you know, pushed in a direction that they think you should go. Um, and you can sort of fight that, but then that's that's not likely to end very well. Um, so I, I kind of didn't fight it and, uh, and, and you know, I did what I thought, you know, I thought they, they wanted and then realized that I didn't necessarily like it very much. <laughs> so, so I started to write, yeah, I started to write the kind of music that I, that I wanted to. And I always, I mean, like for me, I always liked lots of, I mean, you know, I'm, classical music is my absolute, you know, my, my first love, I guess. But, you know, I listen to, you know, and I'm sure most people do listen to all kinds of music and into and I've played with, in all kinds of bands with all kinds of musicians. And, and every experience you have is, is, you know, a learning curve and just another, you know, another you know, feather to stick in your cap. And you're going to be able to take those experiences and apply them to whatever's next. And um, I never really said no to anything. <laughs> and here I am now. You, you, you mentioned Nigel Godrich, um, who is legendary record producer. Yeah. Um, that helps you. Were, were there others? And how, how did Nigel help you? And were there, were there any others that sort of helped you open doors and get on your way? Um, well, Nigel produced the last uh, Divine Comedy um, album that I, when I was still in the band. Um, and, uh, I mean, that was just an amazing experience, being in the studio with somebody like that. Seeing, I mean, I already knew that the, how the studio can be used as a creative instrument, really, that you're sort of living in. I mean, it's obviously a creative place, but it's kind of more than that. It can become this sort of entirely holistic, creative environment. Um and then to see how somebody like he takes the dynamic of a bunch of people in the studio for an extended period of time and just seeing where that takes you and, and uh, you know, just the way he uses and abuses the technology and, you know, how he, you know, this sort of, I mean, he's, I mean, he's extraordinary. 
and you know and and um I still you know like his his albums sound like nobody else's and they sound just so fantastic and beautiful and 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 so creative on every level so that was I mean you know that was just that was helpful he and then you know I met other people off the back of that but really I mean the most help he gave me was just show, opening my eyes to what was kind of possible Absolutely. And I think it's great. You know, Nigel is, you know, he's clearly a very good friend. And I know, you know, your son Morris is helping him out. You know, he's helping Morris now, who's looking yeah, yeah. into a career as composer and sound um, industry. Uh, but what I love is that, you know, Nigel turns up to everything you do. You know, yeah. he's always at your premieres. You know, so I think there's a sort of two way street with you guys. You know, it's really lovely. It is really lovely. Yeah. Yeah, it was really, you know, and, and I've met loads of interesting people, of the, uh, you know, through my friendship with him. But yeah, he's one of my, yeah, like actually like one of my best friends rather than the L.A. version of one of my best friends. Just <laughs> <met> them once at the, <laughs> he schmoozed them once at the party. Um, but another person who was very important for me was um, Brian Elias, um, uh, the wonderful composer uh, who was my, was my teacher for a while. After I went to, sort of misguidedly went to... Um, university to did a music degree which was kind of not that interesting an experience uh, uh and then and then i went and did a master's degree at the guild hall and um but in the in the meantime but but you know in the in the sort of gap between i started going to brian's house for private lessons he i met him through my old piano teacher from when i was a kid um had um i used to live in in um, mumbai and his ex-wife had been Brian, who is from Mumbai's um, first piano teacher. And so it was a very tenuous connection. But when I started writing music, my piano teacher said, oh, you should go and see Brian Elias. So I did. And he offered to teach me. I think he, I think he, I think he was holding his head in his hands with horror. <laughs> <laughs> How clueless I was. So he took me under his wing. And um, I learned so much from that. Uh, and, you know, and it's funny how... Things just sort of, you know, if you if you if you put yourself out there, and you're just, you know, saying yes to lots of collaborations and projects and things, meeting people, trying to kind of get the most you can out of the experience, then you know, one day something something major happens, and you, you don't see it coming, and then before you know it, you know, you're on your way. How do you work? Do, do you have a kind of um you know, the practice, do, do you do things at a certain time of day and on certain instruments? Or If I was, if I didn't have to get up in the morning to take my daughter to school, I would probably start, you know, do sort of paperwork in the morning and not, you know, after lunch, sort of gradually kind of ease myself into it. And then, you know, by about sort of dinner time, Nigel calls it like the magic hour, like sort of nine o'clock onwards is when, is when the juices really start to flow and interesting stuff starts to happen. Fortunately, by that time, I'm nearly asleep with exhaustion having to get up the crack of dawn to take my daughter to school. So in the old days, I would, yeah, I tended to work at night, tended to work regularly till one, two, three in the morning. Um, I don't know what it is. It's just like maybe just because you can't be disturbed or maybe it's something that's sort of trivial. It's just like, you, you know, it feels kind of special because everybody else is asleep. Have you got a studio that you work in that you can sort of move away from, if you like, the sort of the, the buzz of the family home? This is a new thing for me because up until recently, I was um, dividing my time between London and um, a house in Southern Oregon. But then, but then my, you know, my younger daughter started school here and it wasn't really tenable anymore. And in any case, you know, Morris, my oldest, is now over in London a lot of the time anyhow. So now I'm in one place all the time. It meant we could um, 
we could buy this this place, which is it's like an old, I think 1920s. I don't know if it was a shop, but it's some kind of um, commercial space. And there's two floors. There's a lovely room upstairs. We could have done the podcast up there, but they're drilling next door, so it's quieter down here. Uh, and then this, <laughs> and then this lovely kind of it's it in the middle of. I mean. It, 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 you go outside the front door and it's sort of assailed by the sounds of the city. But down here, it's so quiet. And, and I just, you know, hide out here and it's just lovely. You know, the last few years, I've just been, you know, converting, you know, a spare room into a studio or working in a shed at the bottom of the garden. And, it, you know, it all felt a little bit kind of, you know, chaotic. And Yeah, it's interesting. Isn't it? I think I, just before lockdown, I, you came up here and worked in my shed in the garden. Your lovely studio. For a bit, before your studio was ready. And yeah. uh, you, you'd just disappear. I'd be like, wait, we'd have dinner. And then I'd be like, okay, well, I'll go to bed because clearly he's going to be out there till dawn breaks, you know. And uh, all you had to do deal with then was my cat trying to get in. But uh, <laughs> talking of lockdown, um, how was it for you? Well, you know, I, I was very lucky um, in that I had, uh, you know, big projects to work on all the way through it. And in fact, the, the new ballet I've just finished that opens um, at Covent Garden in June, if was has been delayed by, I don't know, a year and a half. I mean, and if it hadn't have been delayed by a year and a half, I'm not exactly sure <laughs> what would have happened because I don't can't see how I would have finished it in time. So I was working on that, and I, and a big um, and an, and my second opera, the Dallas Opera. Uh, which I actually delivered on time, but it's been still been delayed two years. And then, and then the main thing was I was doing the music for um, a big animated movie for Universal Sing Two, and I had a little team, two other people working here. I had an assistant working down that end of the room on the logic rig down there, working on the getting the um, getting the demos sounding, you know, to the requisite standard that one that one now needs to to deliver when you do they gone are the days where you could you could play something on the piano and they'd let you just um you know see you on the scoring station and uh, they really need to hear something that sounds like the finished deal were you were you writing to to uh, find a finished picture or were you writing to bits as they were making them um pretty finished i mean not finished finished but uh yeah when i started there was some kind of there were some bits that were still a little bit kind of clunky and animatic but um you know, the great thing about working on animations is that it tends not to change. Not in, it's not like live action film where the edits are just changing on a daily basis. Yeah, you know, it's like it's pretty much locked. You know, even even when it's very when it's very rough animation, you still know basically what the uh, the durations of the scenes are. Um, so yes, yeah, so I was working on that really through the worst of the lockdown. So we had a little kind of you know a little bubble with three people who were working here, and you know. Yeah, got it done, and then we and then we went out to LA to record it at Fox. You know, we I think we were almost the first um, project back in there when they when they reopened. So my timing was impeccable for once. And, and was there a lot of you know, if you like, COVID restriction around that recording? I mean, Dave will know from his experience running Capitol Studios and then Abbey Road that mm-hmm. you know, you know, coming in to do a film session, there's so yeah. many people around, etc. But how was how how different was it from say you say sing one, if you like? Well, we had to. The main thing was we had to. We couldn't record everybody at the same time. We did sing one. We did it with the wonderful engineer Alan Myers, and 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 oh, yeah. he, you know, we just did yeah everybody in the room. You know, occasionally you might tacit the brass if if it's sort of spilling all over the strings, but that hardly ever happened. I mean, you know, it's just all about getting the, you know, getting the vibe in the room. 
Uh, and this time we had to do strings first and then woodwind separately and then brass separately. And yeah, wow. you know. But it was, you know, the great thing is that you can you can make a um you can make a virtue of it. I mean, when we did the brass, so now you've, you're just doing the brass and you've got that mm. enormous room at Fox. Mm. So we had the brass in this huge horseshoe, like right around the, uh, that enormous library studio one. Uh, so it's this extraordinary, like, you know, three-dimensional image. Um, yeah, we made a virtue of it. I mean, I would still rather, I would still rather record everybody together, but it was great. You know, it's, uh, that's the wonderful thing about working in, in movies is you just get, you know, this fantastic recordings of what you've written, like immediately. Yes. When you write a classical piece, you know, you write it and then you months go by and then there's the first rehearsal and then there's, you know, some fairly kind of, <laughs> kind of see of your pants kind of performances, the first few performances. And then finally, after a few years, it kind of beds down and sounds <laughs> like what you originally intended. You know, with, with film music, it's like, you know, like from, from, from like pressing send on the demo to recording it, it's like, you know, flat and then you then the finished things. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. So, so, you know, Pop music's very immediate, mm. film music's very immediate, but the classical, you're waiting for a, an orchestra to be available in a concert hall, and and they're all booked a long time in advance, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. and they, even when they see the music, I mean, you know, a session orchestra will, you know, they'll play it once, and that is probably, you could that could be the take. But yeah. you'll do a second one for safety. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously exaggerating slightly, but not much. Yeah. And then you move on. Whereas, uh, you know, say you're, you're working on a on an opera or a ballet then you know some of these orchestras even have as, as a sort of you know point of principle that they never give a hundred percent until opening night <laughs> so you're there and it sounds kind of rubbish and you're like have I, have I, what have i completely miscalculated here and i like, write to the dress rehearsal it still sounds awful and then opening night it sounds great you know what, what, what was the um, period of gestation for like water with chocolate like water for chocolate and when did you start churning the idea? And in fact, where did the idea come from? And how long did it take to to get that finished manuscript? It took me three years to write. I mean, I can't quite understand how it took that long. I mean, I did do other things along the way, as I say. But I, I when I said when I when I said turned it off the other day, I looked to see when the first, um, you know, the very first uh, projects, you know, the opening kind of sketches came from. Yeah, and it was almost to the day, three years from starting it in Jill's studio. To finishing it here, yeah, I started it in the room where Jill is, and finished it in the room where I am now. So, oh, wow. um, it was Chris, so Chris Wielden, the Chris Wielden, the wonderful um, choreographer. Um, I, I did two um, full-length ballets, Alice in Wonderland and, and um, The Winter's Tale, for him at uh, Covent Garden, and subsequently they've been taken up around the world by other companies. And it was a really, really, um, you know, happy collaboration we had. So you know, we're sort of waiting for the next opportunity to do one together, and and and. Um, then it was just a question of what what's it going to be, and we had a very we had various different ideas that for one reason or another went south. Um, and then Chris suggested doing like water for chocolate, um, and uh, we went out to Mexico. Him and Bob Crowley, the designer, and myself, and uh, spent a week in Mexico City, just kind of soaking up, kind of you know the flavour of, of Mexico, kind of literally really, because it's the book so much about food. Yeah. We had to go and eat lots of delicious food, which is a real hardship. Um, yeah, and then and then I came back and, and started work on it. But but I've, you know, writing a story ballet is, is really, really difficult because obviously you're trying to tell a story with no words. 
Um, and then, and then that, I mean, anyone can see that that's kind of tricky, but then the really tricky thing is you're, you're also writing the music for something that doesn't exist. It's the opposite of doing like a film score yeah. that, you know, you have the picture to a great, you know, like finished to a greater or lesser extent and you're reacting to it with the music. But with a ballet, the ballet doesn't yet exist, at least the way that Chris and I work. You know, he doesn't choreograph until he has the music, but the music obviously is, um, have to leave room, I mean, for the main event, the dance, which I don't know what that is. So you're constantly, when the storytelling, you're, you're trying to, to give a platform for the choreographer and the dancers to do their thing without knowing what that thing is. Um, Does that require sort of varying tempos and trying to hit peaks? Oh, yeah, yeah, the whole yeah. thing. Incredibly complicated um, uh, structure i mean because what you're really trying to do the trick is tell the story but make it seem like it's a logical musical shape so you know you know so in the middle of like you know verse one if you like suddenly it just goes off in a completely different direction you know you know and that's because you know like the lovely you know intimate moment between you know two protagonists is interrupted by a hideous old you know, wicked stepmother bursting into the room and wreaking havoc. But you, you somehow need to make it sound like musically that was just your, your musical choice, that you just wanted to do that. Not it was forced on you by an entirely unmusically logical story that you're trying to tell. And it's kind of a bit like that when you're, when you're scoring a film as well. It's, you know, if you, can, if you can try and make the music stand on its own two feet by making it feel structurally secure, even though it's dancing around uh, at the behest of the, the narrative, then, then you, you know, that, that always strikes me as a good place to start. Um, and even more important with, with a ballet, because, you know, a film score, the music is, if you like, behind the, the action. But in, in a ballet, you know, the orchestra's there at the front between us and, and what's going on on stage. And, and the people on stage are reacting to the music. They're da literally dancing to the music. So um, it's very important that the music has, you know, ha has enough kind of integrity that, that it can function like that. But also important that it doesn't trample all over what's going on on stage. So it's, uh, it's an incredibly tricky balancing act. And for three years, you're just sort of in the wilderness, hoping, chucking the stuff out, hoping that it's going to all work out. And uh, anyway, I went into the studio the other day and it appears to be all working out. So I'm quite relieved. <laughs> <laughs> Do you start with sort of a sketch of what the scenes are likely to involve? Because you're going to have to edit that book down, aren't you? For, yeah, it's called a choreography. Um, and uh, with Alice in Wonderland, we worked with a playwright, Nicholas Wright, on the on the sonography. But um, we did Winter's Tale, um, just Chris and I ourselves, because because Winter's Tale is already a play and it's already an even size piece of drama. So we felt it, we we we'd probably be able to to kind of construct that sonography itself. And, and it's really a question: you sit down with the choreographer and you and you try and work out what can be told through movement, what can be told through music, what can be told through stage design and theatric theatrics um and then you come away from that process with a you know with a document that it, that's you know pretty accurate with, with some quite accurate timings for everything that happens in every scene um and uh, and then you know that's that's kind of the bible that i i then stick to um and then i'll then i'll prepare a i do i do kind of rough demos on logic so that I can um I can sh I can play it to the to the choreographer and he can have it 
um, and, and react to it and, and tell me if he wants anything to, to change or if I'm on the wrong track or anything. Um, and then I do a, a piano reduction, which is this thing, which um, which they then take into the into the dance studio and uh, with with um, you know live piano accompaniment. Uh, start choreographing too and then this this becomes the, the absolute bible of the whole piece it'll, it'll eventually there'll be a version of it that has all the lighting cues all the stage directions and everything in and 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 the stage the stage manager will will sit at the side of the stage calling the show from from this thing so in 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 classical ballet this this piano reduction is um is everything does it change as they dance to it? Does it choreograph and you tweak a bit and they... Uh, yes, but you're kind of limited in how much tweaking you can do because uh, that's, I mean, that's the other really tricky thing is that there's a sort of mismatch here. Um, I have to deliver the music um, some months in advance of the first performance because otherwise, you know, you can't just, you can't just dump it on the orchestra at the 11th hour. They need to, you know, they need to see the parts and, and familiarise themselves with them and feel basically confident that they're not going to be made to look like a bunch of chumps by some clueless composer. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, but of course, you know, by the time I've, I mean, literally, I sent, I sent the full score off on the Friday and on the Monday, Christopher Wilden arrived from New York where he lives and, and went into the studio at Covent Garden and started choreographing the piece. So then he's like, oh, you know, that bit that we thought would take one minute turns out. It's, I mean, sometimes when we did Alice in Wonderland, there's a, a wonderful scene in the first act where, where um, a, you know, a boat made of newspaper goes across the stage. And uh, yeah, we thought that would take 45 seconds. But when they built the thing and put it on the stage and dragged it across and it turns out it's going to take more like two minutes. So what do you do? You know, vamped already? I mean, that's okay. That's that true. <laughs> So in that instance, I, I I composed more music, but um, but that was uh, yeah, that was. I think if it was an emergency, I might be able to do that again. But it didn't go down so well with the orchestra. Everything no. arriving that late. <laughs> yeah. So this time, uh, um, they have the music, and any changes we want to make, at least for this first run, have to kind of ideally just be like you know, repeat these bars, repeat these bars. Um. And hopefully, I won't have to write anything new. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet the house on it. When, when does the run of the production begin? June the second. June, June the second. Yeah. 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 Come on. Auspicious right, day. And I, I was thinking the other day. You know, you wrote a lot of material during lockdown. Of course, sing. You heard pretty much immediately because of the rhythm of the of the film industry. You know, but other pieces you wrote that you haven't yet heard in the context for which they were intended. And ha has that affected how you're writing music now? Is not hearing them an impediment, I suppose, is what I'm asking. I mean, this is one of the things I learned from Nigel, I think. Um, I, I, you know, uh, you're, at least my generation of composers, you're, you're meant to not need the performance. You're meant to have it in your head. Mm. You know what it sounds like. So that hearing it hearing actually done live is, you know, an optional extra. <laughs> if you like and um when we were going into work with Nigel and and I was you know, I was describing some string texture that you know I thought would be great for a song and he said yeah sounds great you, you know I'll, I'll need to hear it and I was like I mean coming from a classical background I mean it sounds weird now and think about it, it's like kind of obviously you need to hear it but like I grew up things like you don't need to hear it because you should know you should be able to look at the music on the page and you should know um but actually that I mean that's just not 
that's not really true. That's not how it really works. And um, you do need to hear it. I mean, I'm pretty confident about the um, the orchestration of the new ballet that that it will work. But there's bound to be things that I, when I hear them in the room, I'll be like, you know, that could be that could work in a different way, or that could be better, or that could be you know better. So, um, and then pieces I haven't. I mean, I was I just got a score through for an old piece I wrote back in like 2000. Uh, which I think is like languishing in the unavailable part of the, <laughs> the, of the wise music catalogue. And um, it's a question of, do I want to make it available? And I'm looking at it and thinking, oh, I'd love to, but there's no recording of it. It was done once at the Barbican and the whoever was in charge of recording it evidently neglected to press record. And uh, it was, I heard it at one eat. So I'm trying to remember what, how, what did I think of it back in 2000? In, and I can't, yeah hard to remember and then uh and the main thing i think is that you when you're starting out as a classical composer you're not grateful for any kind of anyone to play your music really and 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 the and would be the usual thing would be you write a piece you wait a few months it gets rehearsed never anywhere near enough it gets played really quite badly once and then that's that and if you're lucky, you have some kind of a record of that bad performance um, to take away and uh, try and, you know, you know. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's insane. I remember those old, I had all these old tapes of pieces that was done and, you know, one quite good, a big piece I wrote early on and it was, um, actually it was all going rather well in the room and I was thinking, wow, we can, we're actually going to have a good recording of this. And then at five minutes from the end, this baby in the audience started having a tantrum. <laughs> so I'm like, <laughs> oh, super. Do you, do you yeah, ever get... Um, when, when, particularly an orchestra in a room, and I, I'm, as Jill said, I used to run Abbey Road, and, and Studio One at Abbey Road is is a great recording venue, and there's no audience, so the music's overpowering in there when they're recording as a full orchestra. And I used to, I, on a Friday night, I used to take a pint and sit in the corner, oh, yeah. um, and from the Abbey Road bar, drink my drink, and listen to them recording, and it, it would really twist my heart you know get quite emotional yeah. have, you, have you ever got emotional listening to your own music being played oh yeah for sure i mean especially when it's been played badly and then it's played well i was <laughs> 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 um, going for the other side <laughs> the <good stuff>. uh, <laughs> no it is i mean it's an amazing thing i mean that you know at the end of the day you know i grew up playing in orchestras and you know it was playing in orchestras that made me you know want to be want to do what i do and so, you know, any piece, whether it's, you know, whether it's a film score, whether it's a, whether it's a big ballet or opera, opera concert piece, it's always incredibly, incredibly moving experience to hear these amazing musicians playing the notes that you wrote. I had an um, interesting, um, I, I wrote this uh, guitar concerto a few years ago that was done at the proms and then the BBC Symphony Orchestra recorded it at Abbey Road. Um, and I couldn't be there. I was in, I was in America, but I joined via you know, whatever the posh Abbey Road version of Zoom is. Yeah. Um, it was very expensive at the time, I remember. Yeah. <laughs> but I was sitting at the desk and I actually wrote the music. And then I tell you, it's gone out in this journey and it's been played in the Royal Albert Hall and, and now now they're recording it. So this is an orchestra who'd already played it, so they already knew it. And to have it coming back through the speakers, back to the very place where I started, it really felt like sort of square, you know, like squaring the circle. It was... It was a really magical experience. And it was like the middle of the night. I was exhausted. And um, 
hearing it, you know, like hearing it just, it's a lovely recording for Decca and the orchestra sounded phenomenal. And um, that was like, because there's always, you know, however wonderful and emotional and lovely it is to give your music to an orchestra and hear it played, it's always tempered rather by a sense of, you know, like worried that it's not going to work out, they're not going to understand it, some things aren't going to add. And then just, and then obviously it's never going to be how you hear it. You know, the tempi won't be quite right, at least to begin with, and people are sight reading. And, you know, it, 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 so it's always a kind of, you know, various mini car crashes and occasionally like maxi car crashes like happening and you're trying to kind of keep it together and not kind of just, you know, <laughs> like want to run out to the street, throws up under the first car that comes up. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's, it is hard, and I don't think orchestras quite understand because, you know, for them, they come in, it's just, yeah, it's just another day at the office. But for you, this is a culmination of, like, you know, possibly years' work. And it's a very, uh, very kind of tense, fraught, dangerous moment where they um, where they get to work on your, you know. I mean, they, 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 these scores are huge, and every single note I've thought, a lot about yeah um but obviously you know you can't expect the orchestra to, to treat it with this sort of like kind of as if it's some sacred object it's just you know just you know more music to throw into the music grinding mill <laughs> for them yeah and i think it's interesting isn't it that you know with ballet for example there's a there's a close collaboration with the choreographer you know and therefore almost they're kind of dictating if you like the tempi of the music etc mm. uh and that may or may not align with what you feel at the time but you know that the sum of its parts kind of requires that. Mm. But then when you're writing, say, the guitar concerto for Milos Karadajlik, um, did you collaborate a lot with him on that? That was the plan. But in the event, poor Milos wasn't able to play the guitar at all for the whole period I was writing his piece, which is uh, far from ideal. What, what happened? He had... Um, he had problems like all guitarists do with, 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 his, with his hand with his wrist and I don't know if they ever got to the bottom of exactly what it was whether it was um like tendonitis or whether it was um what's that called there's that one where you get like misfiring nerve endings it's a, and again mm. very common for especially classical guitarists but any guitarist really I mean it's just these micro movements they do like on a, you know for hours and hours every day and eventually um but yeah it, it basically meant he, he he had to take a complete break from the guitar and and I'd written some of the piece uh, like the first few minutes, and he came around to to the house to play it to me. And when he arrived, I couldn't help but notice he hadn't got a guitar, and he kind of made light of it, and you know we had a nice lunch. But I didn't I didn't hear a note until the whole piece was finished, and in the run up to the premiere, which was delayed. It was originally scheduled for the last night at the proms, and then that was delayed by a year. And you know it was all it was all. Um, it was all tricky. I mean, it worked out in the end, and, and Milos is, you know, fantastic. Um, but ideally, you would be, yeah, you would be in the room throwing ideas to and fro, like, you know, as the piece gets written. Um, I mean, this is with, with dance, it's like, you know, I, you know, in some parallel dimension where you can, like, twist time, you, know, you would write the music, you know, in real time as the choreographer choreographs it. But, but you can't. I mean, it takes so much longer to write the music, at least for me, 
than 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 to than to to create a dance. I mean, Chris might work on a on a full length ballet for three four months, but I'm working on it for you know two three years. So there's a mismatch, and you know when things when they finally kind of collide, these sort of super tankers are heading. You know, then you uh, you know you have to just kind of hope for the best and be and be prepared to be a little bit flexible and you know try and yeah try and get it try and get it working. You know, pieces like Path of Miracles, you know, your hour-long evening-length choral piece, you know, based on the Camino, the pilgrimage to Santiago. Um, I think that was quite a close collaboration, wasn't it, with Tenebrae? Yes, with Nigel Short, conductor in Tenebrae. Yes, that was, that felt like a closer collaboration. I wrote two of the movements and, and a, bit of the, a bit of the first movement, I think. I wrote the second and third movement first. Perversely, I don't know why. And then, the, and then started the first movement. And then we had a um, Nigel put a workshop together, so I could actually hear it, hear it being done. And that was, I mean, that was so helpful. It is funny. I mean, you know, I'm glad I was a performer. You know, I'm glad that when I go into the room with these musicians, I, I kind of know what it's like to be, you know, coming from their end. So many composers, especially like in film music and stuff, now that you know they never played you know don't even play anything you know they're very good programmers really very good composers i don't know but they don't know what it's like to be in an orchestra to follow a conductor or to you know even just be on a session and play something i mean it's it's you know i think you need to have you need to have got your hands dirty you need to feel you know sometimes it's just i mean it's weird like the psychology of it sometimes you know i'll be i'll be writing a big orchestral score and i'll be agonizing over you know what directions to give to you know the first flute you know in terms of dynamics and articulation and everything and often i'll just i'll just click w on the thing which takes you to the the part so rather than looking at the whole score with all the instruments on one page you're just looking at just what the first flute's going to be seeing and something which you think as the composer makes total sense when you're looking at the whole thing. Suddenly you take it down to what's actually on their stand. That's the thing they're going to see. It makes no sense at all. You know, so because you, <laughs> there's a very big difference between looking at the whole thing holistically as the, as, you know, as the composer and being in it, trying to just operate one cog in this big machine. Um, and likewise, I mean, I suppose the biggest difficulty about composing generally is seeing the wood for the trees, that when you're, it's very difficult to have an objective, correct, sensible opinion on something you're writing because you're so in it. You just wish that you could just like somehow flick a switch and not be in it and see it with fresh eyes and ears. Usually what happens is I work all day on something, like yesterday, worked all day on this one bar and, uh, wow. you know, and then come back the next morning and realize it's all rubbish, throw it away and start again. But presumably the other days it just flows through you like water, is it? Must do. Sometimes those days seem to be very few and far between. Slightly off, off, off the beaten track, but... I remember li listening to an interview with Kenny Dalgleish, who had been Liverpool manager. Yeah. And they just won the league again. Yeah. And, and the, the guy asked, so how, how long did that feeling of well-being, of having succeeded? And he said, seconds. Yes. Yeah. Seconds. <laughs> and then he's on to solving next year's problems. Well, it is a bit like that. Um, but, you know, but then, but then, you know, you're really looking forward to that moment where, you know, you're going to hear, you're going to be sitting in the auditorium at the Royal Opera House and that music's going to come out of the, 
of the pit and it's going to be wonderful. But I wish it didn't take so long for me to relax into it. I mean, if I really try hard now, pieces that, you know, I wrote like a long time ago, I can actually just quite enjoy. But if it's anything I've written in the last few years, I just, but I realized that, that, that I spend most of the time watching my ballets, just watching the back of the conductor's head, just willing them not to mess up. <laughs> keep it together, keep it together, keep it together. And like, and they'll say, oh, wasn't that ballerina amazing? I'm like, what, what they're a ballerina? <laughs> I'm like, just staring at the, the collar of like whoever's conducting. Joby, I was thinking um, you actually achieved a huge amount during the first lockdown we've experienced in our lives anyway. Uh, you know, not least of all, you've got a new son who's nearly five months old that appeared yeah. during that yeah. period. So yeah. that aside, you know, I think, you know, it's a, a probably a predictable question, but, you know, will, when as we're out of this lockdown, will you just press reset back to normal or do you think there's a new normal for you? Anything, any thoughts from that? Well, the, I mean, one of the big things that happened to me during lockdown was, was moving back to London full time. And certainly I, you know, it really makes you, I mean, what I love about living in London is there's just so much going on and it really makes you realize, you know, you should be out there going to see things and hear things, and eat things, and you know, walk through things. And, you know, just like that, 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 that's just, you can't just, you just can't take it as a given. You know, like there was nothing like being told, you know, you, you couldn't go to a restaurant, you couldn't go to the opera house, you couldn't go to concerts, you couldn't go to a gig, you know, you couldn't go to the pub to make you realize that, you know, that you, you, you know, all those days where you're just not being doing really very much and think, oh, we must try that place. Or, you know, we must, oh, I that's, you know, I realized I used to look at the listings and think you'd be finding, trying to look for reasons to, to be let off the hook and not have to go. And you'd be like, oh, that, I bet that concert's going to be really, really good, but. Oh, it's sold out now. Never mind. <laughs> and now I'm like, no, I won't let myself do that. You know, I actually go. Um, at least I hope that doesn't wear off because um, mm. you're only we're only here once, and uh, you know, time whizzes by. It's extraordinary how I'm sure everyone finds this that people you haven't seen at all since before, since the, what they call you know the before times or whatever, you, you see them and it's like no time has gone past at all. Because in a way, it, it felt like just two years just like cut out of our lives um, yeah that's exactly true and I, I actually think that's a fantastic place to end the interview um make the most of your time i think yeah. is the key message um but thank you so much for your time for for, for taking the time to talk to us that, that was a fascinating conversation oh i'm glad you um, also yeah. absolutely enjoyed chatting to you both. Thank you.